Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Honored that you're here. To keep the Paul Leslie Hour going, you can support the show. Just go to thepaulleslie.com. You're going to see a button, support the show. You can make a donation via PayPal. Any amount, $2, $20, whatever you donate, it goes to keep the show going. This is an interview that was recorded a few years back. I was especially elated to do this interview. This is with the legendary composer Charles Fox. He is an inductee of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He wrote the music for such songs as I've Got a Name, recorded by Jim Croce, Killing Me Softly, recorded by Roberta Flack, Ready to Take a Chance Again by Barry Manilow, and many more. He composed the music for the Love Boat theme, for example. The theme to the TV show Happy Days. He's written with some of the greatest lyricists from Norman Gimbel, who has now passed away, and Paul Williams. We did this interview shortly after his autobiography came out, and as I said, I was very honored to talk to him. He is one of the best composers in American music, and I think that with those songs that I mentioned, you might agree. As always, let me know what you think. I hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, it's with great pleasure we welcome our special guest, the one and only Charles Fox. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Nice to meet you, too. So who is Charles Fox? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> um, I guess that's a question I've never been asked quite so directly before, but I'm a, I'm a composer. I've been writing music for the past, you know, nearly 50 years. I studied in Paris many years ago with one of the great composition teachers, Nadia Boulanger, who was Marin Copeland's teacher 40 years before me. I've had a very wide and varied career in music, starting with, well, when I was 15 years old, I played in bands. I had a band in the Casco Mountains and discovered Latin music and got really into playing Latin music and salsa. In fact, my earliest songs were in Spanish. When I started playing some of those Latin bands, I didn't speak Spanish, but I had a feel for the music. And then I went to Paris after it. When I came back, I got back into playing in bands. And when one thing led to another, and I knew I needed to spend my life doing compositions. So any chance I had that would give me the opportunity to compose music, like doing short films in USIA films, uh, U.S. Information Agency, one thing led to the other. And here it is, many years later, I'm getting to talk to you, Paul Leslie, on the phone. So you mentioned the experience of getting a musical education in Paris. What was the most important thing you learned from that experience? Nadia Boulanger was an extraordinary woman. She's considered to be the most the most important composition teacher of the whole 20th century. I mean, she taught Virgil Thompson and contemporary composers like Philip Glass and Quincy Jones and Michelle Legrand. I mean, from her and from my experiences in Paris, I realized the importance of music and the depth of music and how music can change your life. It's very hard to single out one thing. I mean, I had a whole life there, you know, and I, I was 18 years old when I came to Paris. I lived in the Bronx, grew up in the Bronx with, with my parents, and it was a whole revelation. The world of Paris learning French. I didn't speak a word of French when I came there. 
So I had to study French just to get by, and of course, it's part of my, my language. Being exposed to the world of music, this is 1959, 1960, the world of avant-garde music, which we are so used to now, was very new then. The music of Pierre Boulez and people like that. And, and going to the operas regularly, two or three times a week in, in, in Paris, Magnificent Opera House, and, and hearing the, uh, the works, such great works of the past, and all the contemporary concerts. I mean, every day was a revelation to me. Every day was new. And of course, Paris itself is for me the most beautiful city in the world so combination of all those things and, and being a student i was there for two years and it affected my life it changed my life our special guest is charles fox which composers have had the greatest influence on your work as far as classical composers i would say maybe bartok certainly stravinsky leonard bernstein eric copeland i think i've been affected by gershwin actually gershwin you know was one one composer who went to Paris to study with Nadia Boulanger, she told me the story. She wouldn't accept him as a student because when he came to her, he was already... What happened was he was at a party in New York, and when Ravel was, came to New York to conduct a tour and, and wrote Bolero, and someone put the two of them at a piano together, and I guess they had a good time, and Gershwin asked Ravel if he could come to Paris to study with him because of all of his, his greatness. I guess he felt he was lacking in some technique, and Ravel told him that, no, he's not a teacher, but go to Paris to study with Nadia Boulanger, who was his classmate at the conservatory. And Boulanger herself told me that when Gershwin came to study with her, that she felt he was already too far advanced in his own work and that she would hurt him if she uh, gave him any instruction of her own. So she declined to do that, which is kind of amazing. You know, that I've been influenced, I think, by, by all the composers, going back to Bach and Mozart and, and Beethoven, but in terms of the more contemporary composers, I would say Stravinsky and, and Bartok. Now, uh, in my songwriting, because that's a good part of my career, too, I think I've been influenced by the Beatles music from the 60s, you know, when I was first starting to write songs. It was a whole different landscape on the radio those days until the Beatles came along with their interesting, cute, quirky melodies and orchestrations and things. And, and of course, Burt Backrack and Hal David with their songs and Paul Simon and uh, even Jimmy Webb. I, I saw Jimmy Webb the other day and I told him this. I said that when I was just getting started, he was already, I had already some, some of those great hits like MacArthur Park. And I said, my God, that, that was a revelation, that kind of song, a six or seven minute song on the radio. So I think I'm influenced by, by a lot of people in my career. Those are some of the few. Tell us about Norman Gimbel. How did you come to meet him and what was your first impression of him? Norman Gimbel, when I first started to work with him, was this enormously successful. He had written all of the, not all, but he'd written a lot of the bossa novas with Jobim. Norman helped bring bossa nova really to this country and, and with the English language. He wrote Girlfriend Panima and I Will Wait for You, well, How It's Sensitive and Summer Samba. And then he worked with Michelle Legrand on the score for The Bells of Sherbert, and he had two big songs from that, I Will Wait for You and Watch What Happens. I had a project when I was, before I had moved to California, I was still living in New York, but I had come out here to do a film called Goodbye Columbus. And I say here, but I'm, uh, I'm actually in New York right now as we speak. But I had come to California to do the movie Goodbye Columbus and followed that with a series for Love American Style, which, uh, so I had a very easy transition from, from New York to California. But then I was asked to do a film called Puff and Stuff. The Universal. It was a musical version of a successful television show that Sid and Marty Croft did. It was a children's musical, and I was asked to write all the songs and do the score. I didn't have a lyricist that I worked with. 
often. And um, so I was at the office of BMI when they broadcast music, which is my licensing organization for performances. And they suggested Norma Gimmel. So they put us on the phone together. We decided we would we would meet, and, and after that we we met and started a collaboration that lasted about thirty years, and, and we wrote many many hundreds of songs together. And so many of those songs are still loved to this day. Could it be possible to pick a favorite composition of yours? You know what, really, well, that's a, a question I do get asked also because I mean certainly some songs have been much more successful, so it's hard to it's hard not to. Um, I mean, "Killing Me Softly," for example, has been recorded a thousand times with a thousand different people and more around the world and, and it was too big to hit it was a hit twice once on the bird of flock and 20 years later another generation with the, the fujis and i have theme songs you know that have played around the world and uh, happy days and love boat and and and, and uh, i had a real personal connection with jim croce when we wrote i got a name that uh, and that touched me very much so i have those moments but the truth is i don't have favorites because i think of everything that i do i first of all i try my best my hardest and i, I try to bring out everything in every work I, I do, and they all sort of earmark a point in my life. You know, I, I can remember a specific song, where I was and what I was doing and what my life was like at the time. And I've done about a hundred films. I've scored about a hundred films, and of course, some you know were more successful than others, and some I had better time than others. But each one represented a, a part of my life. You know, and I always worked to to do my best work. And so for that reason, it's hard to single out. And the other thing is, I have songs that I've written that the world doesn't know. They just, for one reason or another, didn't get the same attention or acclaim. And I don't love those any less. They're not any less important to me in terms of my, my output in my life. You mentioned a couple of songs there. The Happy Days song. That's a song that so many people know. So many people can hum along to it or they know the words to it. What was the inspiration behind that song? I've done many television shows, many television themes over the years, probably about 50, 50 different shows in all. Some of them got on the air, many didn't. Some of them were just pilots. But I've been very fortunate that I've had a number of series that have been long-lasting series. I mean, starting with Wide World of Sports in 1965 was the first television theme, and I followed it two years later with Monday Night Football. When I was, it came out to uh, Hollywood, I was asked to do the theme for, um, I might as well asked to do the series for Love America Style, and, and we wrote the theme for that as well. And, and that was kind of my, my entree to Hollywood television and films. And Happy Days was, was originally an episode in Love America Style. You know, Love America Style had three separate episodes within the hour, and one of them one time was called Love and the Happy Days. And there was a story of the 50s, okay, you know, the young kids in the 50s. And anyway, ABC loved Love America Song because they could put the cost of Hull's pilots right into an episode of Love America Song. But they didn't buy it as a series. It just sat for about a year or two until American Graffiti came out, which was Lucas's film, you know, and that was the 50s with Ron Howard. And so ABC decided the time might be right to revisit the 50s. And at that time, I was asked to write the theme for it, and, and what was supposed to be was to sound like, well, I mean, the movie, Eric Graffiti, had a song called Rock Around the Clock, which was a big hit in the 50s, Bill Haley and his comments, and Norman Gimbel and I were out to write a song that sounded like it could have been a hit in the 50s, but yet it would be a brand new song about our show, about happy days, and hopefully one that could take hold and become a hit all over again, and, and in fact, all those things happened. But the motivation was to write something that sounded like it came from the 50s, like was born there, but yet had the life and the energy to sound up and fun in the 70s when we did this, I think maybe 74, 75. And the series stayed on the air for, for many years, or maybe 
10 or 12 years, I think, in, in prime time, but it's still on around the world. So so that's the reason people know the song. I heard that as I travel myself, I've turned television channels in different countries and I've heard the Fonzie speaking in German and Polish and in, in Hebrew. You know, it's kind of funny to see that. But the music goes along with it. And and the songs, they don't translate, by the way. The songs stay the same in English. Now, that Happy Days record that you see dropping on the screen has a little bit of history to it now because there was one singular record made at the beginning of the show when you see the record drop on the jukebox and start spinning and Happy Days song comes on. You can see, uh, if you slowed it down, you would see that it said Happy Days music by Charles Fox, lyrics by Norman Gimbel. That was a record that they had printed, stamped, just for use in that show. It was one of a kind. That record, the sheet earlier this year, was just inducted into the Smithsonian, and I along with it. And that's going to sit in the, permanently in the history of, uh, of American television in a cabinet along the Fonzie's jacket. So that was pretty cool, and uh, I enjoyed that. And it's, it's just nice to know that it's a little part of some kind of history, you know? That's amazing. It's got to be such an honor. It was. It was a great honor. One of my favorite songs of all time, both the lyric and the melody, is I Got a Name which was recorded by Jim Croce. So I was hoping yeah. you could tell us about your relationship with him and about that song. Norman Gimbel, again, and I wrote that song for a picture called The Last, the Last American Hero. It was one of Jeff Bridges' earliest films. There's a character in the Jeff plays, kind of a rough-and-tumble character, and he's a car-racing guy, and, uh, and he's also uh, he used to drive homemade booze to the destination that his father made. And because uh, it was legal, the cops were continually chasing him. He learned to drive the car real fast and get away from the cops. Well, his father was eventually sent to jail. And it's a story about his relationship with his father and growing up, really becoming a race car driver. So Norman and I wrote a song. We needed someone to sing it whose voice was kind of the equivalent of the song. It was a, it was a character, had a lot of heart to it. It was energetic, had the movement of the, of the feel of the, of the road, you know, moving me down the highway, rolling me down the highway, moving ahead so life won't pass me by. That was the thought that should have come from, from uh, Jeff Bridges' mind, driving his car. There was a new artist coming up on the charts, Jim Croce, who had a record called Operator. It wasn't a hit yet, but it was moving up the charts. But we liked his voice, and we thought his voice really perfectly married the character and the song that we wrote and the character in the film. So we called Jim and uh, played, him this, played the song from over the phone, which is very unusual, but we had to get this the main title recorded because um, the picture was about to be released. So Jim heard the song and said he would do it, and I went to the studio. I, I got his key. I hadn't met him yet. got his key by listening to his record. And I found a comfortable key for my song. And I went into the studio, 20th Century Fox soundstage, and recorded the track for him to sing over with the full orchestra strings and everything. And I brought that track to New York. And when I met Jim for the first time in his producer's office, the first thing Jim said to me was that, you know, we heard the song on the phone, could he hear it again? So I sat at the piano and I sang it for him, played it for him. And he, he said, you know, I knew I had to sing this song because I knew it would make me feel closer to my own father whose life ended at an early age. And uh, so I was always very touched by that, especially since Jim Croce also died at a very young age. He, he, uh, he was actually working on this, this song. He had some big hits before this release. This record was released. Bad Lord Brown was a big hit. And he was already a very popular guy. And our song came out, and, and unfortunately, the plane was went down one, one night, and, and the world really discovered him in a big way, and Time in the Bottle came out right on the heels of I Got a Name, and, and suddenly he had three albums in the, on the charts at the same time. And I always remember him as a nice 
sweet guy. We had a nice brief relationship, but he, but he was a very he was a lot of fun and surely uh, a you know good guy. And, and, uh, and tragically, his life ended way too soon. But I was always touched by the by the fact that um, he talked about his father. You know, years later, Lena Horne sang that song. She recorded the song, first of all, but then she kind of did it her own way. She kind of turned it inside out, and she sang this song in her Broadway show, Lena Horne Live on Broadway. And I saw that show when she came out to California, and she started singing I Got a Name as the second song, right after Stormy Weather, which is a signature song. And she kind of injected feelings about her father in the middle of that song and it had like a, a very dynamic quality to it and the audience started cheering her and standing up and giving her a chance cheering ovation in the middle of a singing song i did the same and anyway i was so moved by it that i the next day i wrote her a letter no excuse me i sent her flowers she wrote me the letter i sent her flowers to her dressing room because i didn't know her at that time and i just said from a grateful composer thanks for singing the song so beautifully and she sent me back the nicest note which I can quote because I have a friend actually in my studio. And she said to the composer of my favorite song, you have no idea what it means to me. Every time I sing the song, I think of my father. So it's just an incident of a song that resonates with a lot of people in different ways. But the connection, actually, you know, in the biography about Lena Horne, her biographer talked about her relationship to that song. I mentioned me and Norman Gimbel. So it's quite an interesting background, but, but I'm always touched thinking about, uh, about Jim Croce and, um, and what he left behind. It's a wonderful, wonderful history of his own songs, you know, that uh, he sang so beautifully. Another great song, a favorite of many Barry Manilow fans, is Ready to Take a Chance Again. What did you think of the interpretation that Mr. Manilow recorded? Oh, Barry was fantastic. We, we wrote that song for Barry. We, uh, we didn't know Barry Manilow when we started to write that song, but the picture of uh, Foul Play called for a song to be written that Goldie Hawn would hum along with and sing along with when she was driving along this beautiful coast of, uh, of San Francisco, and she was about to pick up a stranger. She was about to ha- have this dilemma. A guy was hitchhiking. And um, so there's so supposed to be a song. The script called for a song called Taking Chances that Goldie would be singing along with and it would plant a seed in her mind to take a chance. And then she was about to pick up this hitchhiker, and that would be the, the, really the, the plot of the story would begin. We wrote a song called Ready to Take a Chance Again. That was known as I really came up with that, based on the, the fact that she had already had that. We, we see her at the beginning of the cocktail party, and Goldie Hawn is kind of, well, Chevy Chase is kind of trying to make time with her, and, and she just came out of a bad relationship, so. So that was the reason for Ready to Take a Chance again. We wrote the song for Barry. He heard it, loved it immediately. He went off to New York. He made the record with Ron Dante, who produced it. And when he finished the record, he came out to California and he brought it into the studio, into Paramount Picture Studio, where myself and the producer and director, Colin Higgins, were. And he said, see what you think about this. He put it, he put the tape on. We all got very excited. It, was, it sounded like a hit record. It sounded fantastic. He sounded great. And, you know, when he first started doing that in concert, Actually, the first time I heard him do it in concert was at the Greek Theater, and the, the song was on the radio. It was already it was already a big hit. And he started playing the piano. The introduction, the audience already uh, started applauding, which means they know they knew the song, and which is always a nice feeling when you're when you've written a song and, and people here know it is just from the introduction. And he was a little nervous about singing that song at first because it was quite rangy. Although he recorded it fantastically and he sounded great on record, 
it was the first time I'd sung it live. So he kind of walked around the stage holding the, the sheet music and eventually said, well, I got to do it. And he started to sing it. Well, of course, after a while, you know, as soon as he started to sing it, was, it was uh, right in his uh, in his range and all that. And very oftentimes after that, he would open a show with Killing Me Softly. And of course, this is many years later. He still performs it in, in his act and he still sounds great. We went to see him in Vegas a couple of years ago, and uh, that show in Vegas at the at the Caesar's Palace, the song wasn't even in the. the it was a, kind of more like Broadway songs, but because he invited us to come down, he put the song in the show, and that was that was pretty wonderful. I mean, Barry's a great guy and a wonderful artist. You've written an autobiography, "Killing Me Softly: My Life in Music." What was right. the experience of reminiscing and looking at old letters and all that when it came to putting this book together? You know, I never thought I would ever write my memoir. It wasn't something I planned to do. My wife and I found a box, a shoebox in my mother's house about two years before she passed away in, in the Bronx. And these are the letters in the shoebox, about 200 letters that I had written home when I was a student in Paris and was two years. And those letters were kind of a portal back to my, my life, looking back, which is something I never thought of doing. I'm always looking forward and ahead to my next project. A literary agent heard about those letters and called me and asked me if he could read them. And my first reaction was, why would you want to read my letters? That's kind of personal, first of all. And he, he explained that he thought they might be interesting to kind of uh, an open window to uh, a door many years ago of a youngster, you know, young man in Paris, 18, 19 years old, studying with an extraordinary, legendary teacher. And he, he just was curious. So I, I agreed to give him the letters. And uh, there was Xerox, of course, by this point. He called me a couple weeks later and said, you know, I think there's a book here. If you would fill it out and tell me your life before you went to Paris and what happened when you came back. So I really accepted the challenge. He said, if you just, he said, I think there's a book here that people really like to read. It can be really inspiring about people who pursue their dreams and not just necessarily music, but just people who have dreams that they want to pursue. And he said, if you just give me uh, an outline of what are you going to do, I think we, I can get a publisher to agree to it. I said, well, I really don't know how to do an outline. I said, but I'll write the book. So it took me two years and uh, wrote it in longhand and uh, my assistant put it on the computer. And it was a very interesting experience looking back. Plus, I've done so many things this, over a period of 45, 50 years that there's so much to talk about. But I, I found the things I think will be the most interesting that people I've worked with, like Fred Astaire, like... Barry Manilow, Roberta Flack, that I think would be the most interesting. I also wrote about my ballets, because uh, I talked about classical music before. I mean, that's part of what I do, too. I've written ballets for the San Francisco Ballet Company and Dancer of Holland, and I've seen those ballets performed uh, in many countries in the world. Uh, so I've written about those experiences, and some of the things that didn't end up so pleasantly, you know, things that I didn't expect. You always do your best work, but not everything turns out the way you hope, and sometimes it turns out even more than you ever dreamed. So those are the, the ups and the downs of anyone's life in any any creative world, and, and I wrote about them. For my last question, for anybody who hears this interview, wherever or whenever, what would you like to say to all the listeners? Well, especially to people who have dreams that they want to pursue, they may think that they, it's above above their reach, it's out of their reach. But that it's, I think it's important to try to pursue your, your goals and your dreams. We're often told, well, this is too hard, you can't do this, and one can't do that. I always believe, and I've told this to my own children, that uh, if you study hard and you work hard and you and you and you. The dreams are real, you know, something that's really a, a real dream, not an imaginary dream, but something you think you'd like to do, then pr pursue it and try to ch achieve that because then you have a satisfaction in your life for something that's, that's real to you, you know. 
For more information on Charles Fox, please visit charlesfoxmusic.com and killingmesoftly.com. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Paul. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.